You're listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver Podcast brought to you by KevKayat.com. Kev helps nonprofit leaders deliver more impact faster and easier so they can be mission accomplished in 40 hours a week or less. For more information, visit KevKayat.com because good causes deserve better results. Now, here is the host of Nonprofit Problem Solver, Kev Kayat. Hello, Kev Kayat here. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver. Thanks for tuning in. Just to be clear, you are actually the Nonprofit Problem Solver. What I'm doing is speaking to a guest to extract the practical, tactical expertise that they have to share so you can put it straight into action. This is a recording of a live Zoom call, and you can join these calls usually on a Wednesday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific, if you register at nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Every nonprofit is looking for financial stability, and just about every nonprofit fundraising consultant will tell you that major gifts are a key component of that stability. Yet many nonprofits shy away from major gifts in favor of events, peer-to-peer, and other types of fundraising. My guest today, fundraising coach Catherine Yule, gives us a useful definition of major gifts that you might find surprising because it means that no matter what size of nonprofit you're in, you're already doing major gifts. That's right. Then she goes on to share her thoughts about how to do it well. Welcome to Nonprofit Problem Solver, the podcast. Uh, this is episode 28, and my guest is Catherine Yule. Welcome, Catherine. How are you? I'm great, Kev. Thanks so much for having me on today. Uh, well, it's my pleasure. And our question for the day, and the problem we're going to look to solve, is major gifts, if not now, when? So, Catherine, tell us a little bit about yourself and about your background, and then we'll jump right in. Sure. Thanks, Kev. Um, So I've been working in the nonprofit world for my entire career. Um, In my earlier uh, years, of course, I was just getting started and and really um, from those entry-level positions, getting a bird's eye view of the importance of fundraising to the ability of nonprofits to deliver on their mission and have an impact in the world. So that's really what got me fired up and inspired about uh, the role that fundraising could play in having such a tremendous impact, um, which is really what I find so many people are seeking in their lives, meaningful work, work where they can make a difference. So that led me on an exciting career path. And eventually I found myself um, 10 years in the role of executive director of a small nonprofit. And it was in that role that I really learned the challenges that exist for the smaller nonprofit when the executive director or the executive director and maybe one staff member are responsible for all things related to fundraising. And when you really feel the weight of everything being on your shoulders and the urgency of the needs for funds to be raised, you often default to those uh, more immediate strategies, the strategies of fundraising that can bring a dollar in quickly. Um, And that leads you to neglect the things that will require you to build relationships over time um, and will require you to be patient and confident um, 
in your strategy, but will ultimately result in much more significant and sustainable gifts and strategies for your fundraising. So knowing that I had those struggles as, a, as an executive director, and yet really discovering that that relationship building fundraising work uh, was, was just what called to me, what, what I was really inspired to do, um, led me to take a position at a much larger organization where I got to learn and go really deep on the art and science of major gift fundraising. And so since that time, I've been um, about eight years now leading a team of 10 development officers who are all raising over a million dollars a year. And I've really gotten to learn what it takes to sort of be um, organized and systematic and to coach the confidence and uh, the focus uh, into those young fundraisers. And um, now my desire is to take all that I've learned and pass that knowledge back to those small nonprofits who do not have the infrastructure, the training, um, really the, the mindset to focus in on major gifts or haven't yet been exposed or gained confidence. Yes. Well, the, the, the need is as major as the gifts, I would say. Yes. Um, and uh, and just, so just let's start at the very beginning. Uh, I was on a Clubhouse conversation earlier this week uh, about major gifts, uh, combining people from the U.S., the U.K., and Canada. And I don't think it were geographic differences in their understanding of major gifts. I think there was just some... Not confusion as such, but 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 lack of clarity around specifically what constitutes a major gift as opposed to other gifts. So can we just put some definitions down? How do you describe what a major gift really is? Sure. Um, a question that a lot of people ask, Kev. Um, the, the basic uh, starting place I like to take it is the number doesn't matter. Uh, what's a major gift for your organization is really individual to your organization. What matters is that it's a one-to-one -one strategy. So when a gift or relationship is significant enough or has the potential to be significant enough that you feel you should engage in a one-to-one -one strategy versus a one-to-many strategy, like a mail-out or a crowdfunding campaign, um, if, you, if you really feel like a one-to-one -one strategy um, is the right play, then, then we call that major gifts, or you can just call it one-to-one -one fundraising. That's, that's interesting because with a lot of uh, smaller nonprofits, particularly those who are starting up or have, have been starting for a long time, you know, been in that sort of very, uh, very uh, extended planning mode, uh, and so haven't really got off the ground, and, and they're really still raising funds that are not necessarily el eligible for grants. So they are doing one-to-one -one fundraising. So would it, would it, uh, does it complicate your definition if the, the brand new startup nonprofits who are pursuing one-to-one -one fundraising through their, uh, their small working board and the network associated with that small working board, would that constitute then major fundraising? In other words, almost everything they're doing that's not a, that's not like a potluck dinner or a, or a Facebook campaign. Yeah, absolutely. I, I definitely think that qualifies because otherwise we're basically saying if you're a small and new nonprofit, don't bother starting with major gifts until you're five to 10 years in, which isn't what we want to say. What we want to say to those young nonprofits is there's an opportunity for you to start as well. You need to look at your strategies 
and separate out sort of all of your one-to-many strategies, which are very important for getting the word out about your nonprofit and introducing people to the great work of your nonprofit on a broad level. Um, but uh, the one-to-one strategies, it's really up to you to decide. And of course, once you've been receiving gifts for 10 or 15 years, mining your data and strategically focusing your time on those people who've given solid indications that they have growing interest and capacity is where we want to get to. But I don't ever want a young, new nonprofit to feel like they can't get started. If, if you're working with someone... Um, if you've sent a mail out to someone and they sent you a, a $200 check and that's the largest gift you've ever uh, received, I want you to form a one-to-one relationship with that individual, even if it's just, you know, $200, because that's the biggest indication you have of someone having interest and capacity. So that's interesting too, because uh, I, lo- I love this distinction between the one-to-one and the one-to-many. It's very simple and easy to understand uh, and divorces the idea of the the effort from the size of the gift. It's, it's really about the nature of the relationship. And I think startups and small nonprofits uh, are, 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 you know, understand that, uh, never mind the larger ones. They get the, fundraising is relationship uh, building, but this, this core of, of donors that, uh, for whom you have a one-to-one relationship uh, is really your major gift str- strategy. So everyone's doing it from the very beginning. They might just not recognize it as such. Right. And and the idea is you can't scale that model. So once you, you get to a certain size, you will have to put a plan in place that is a one-to-many strategy for gifts under a certain level because you really won't be able to scale a one-to-one relationship with every donor. Um, so you will focus your efforts on those people who now you have redefined, you know, once gifts are over this level or the person has connections at this level or an interest level at this level, we will focus our efforts for one-to-one there because it does take more time, but the yield is so much more significant that it makes it a valuable investment of that time. And that, and that one-to-one applies not just to, say, the founder or the executive director. It could be anybody on the board, for example, who is working a one-to-one relationship in his or her network. Exactly. And you want to um, demystify and get the fear um, removed from the idea of um, doing something like major gifts. Maybe we should stop calling it major gifts, which probably frightens some people away. And um, give them some easy tasks uh, engagement is is really the, the name of the game at the beginning. So um, while we can um, approach some foundations and some corporations as major gifts because they will be relationship-based in some cases, so I would include them on my major gift list, list if they were uh, relationship-based foundations and corporations. Um, while we will include those most are going to be individuals, um, people that we uh, have engaged in some way or another with our organization who've somehow put their hand up to say they care about what we do. Mm-hmm. And we need to remember that the typical major gift engagement pathway takes 18 to 24 months. And in 18 to 24 months, you will likely find a strategic way to engage that donor or potential donor uh, six to nine times before you make that major, what you consider a major gift ask. 
So the six to nine engagements or touches you have with that donor can be a lot of different things. One might be um, uh, the fundraising officer taking them for coffee and getting to know them and find out whether they actually have an interest and some capacity. Um, Another might be inviting them to an event to sit at the VIP table with the board chair. Another might be to come back uh, to the back side of operations and see how the soup kitchen runs. Um, Then you might send them a follow-up article on something they were particularly interested in. So all of these things count as the touches along that um, 18 to 24-month typical pathway. And then your whole time that you're engaging them, you're learning more about what they care about and describing what projects you are undertaking, and you're looking for where those two overlap, where you discover they have a passion to make a difference, and that's something you're doing, that's where your ask is going to be. It's going to be on that project. Right, right. Okay. So I just want to mention as well that in in some respects, it could, you've got your one-to-many fundraising effort, and this, we're here, we're describing this as the one-to-one but in some cases, it could be a many-to-one <laughs> if you're talking about different members of the development team, if you're staffed that way, but also different members of your board, so that the this prospect, shall we say, uh, of those six to nine touches could come from different people. Yes, but you do want one person to sort of manage the strategy on that. So uh, you, you get these um, individuals who you're including on your one-to-one list or many-to-one, as you've described. Um, because at the beginning of the year, you want to be strategic. You want to be thoughtful about how you're going to engage these people. Because if you just think loosely, I'm going to do some major gifts with some people, and you don't put it down into a plan, uh, the likelihood is you just won't do it. You'll get to the end of the year and say, oops, I, I forgot to engage that person, or I did once but didn't get back there. Um, so you make a strategy. One person being in charge of making the strategy is great. Definitely bring in different players, different people to partner with you on that engagement. And the other important thing that you raised there, Kev, that I think um, all fundraisers, um, whether they're the CEO, the board chair, or, or a professional fundraiser, should know or should practice is um, you, you might be responsible for forming a one-to-one relationship with a donor in order to bring them closer. But remember that you are actually forming their relationship with the organization, so you don't want them to become so attached to you and your, your relationship with them. So regularly introducing them to other key players in the organization is really important because the truth of the matter is in fundraising for nonprofits, we have a high turnover rate right now, which mm-hmm. really works against us in developing relationships and relationship development businesses. So you need to really encourage your team not to be thinking about when they're going to jump ship and, and leave their job because we want them to stay and, and be with our organization for a long time and develop great relationships. But remember to be forming those ties with other people in the organization so that should something change, um, there isn't a big loss for the organization. Their time invested is still time invested in terms of their relationship with that uh, potential donor. And the, the, the sustainability is really the key thing here. If you're talking about six to nine touches over 18 to 24 months, uh, which ultimately results in a uh, donation, uh, you are presumably expecting that relationship to continue over some time. Yes. So the best next major gift is the best well-stewarded last gift. So it's a, it, 
you're, you're always going to be cycling um, a well-engaged donor to the next level and the next level and the next level, um, assuming that you're still delivering an impact that means something to them in their heart, um, in their desire to make an impact on the world. So yes, uh, you are going to invest time and it's going to grow over time. You, your donor retention is absolutely key. Well, if you put all that, yeah, if you put all that effort in, uh, and, and I think this is, this is the, the, the key thing that uh, I try to impart to, to founders or to people uh, who are in those early stages and are, and are small and looking for donors. It doesn't happen overnight, but you can't wait to get started. Right. Yes, you can't wait because um, if you look at the uh, mature organizations, uh, really anyone who's who's got a robust fundraising strategy um, for their organization, um, they will uh, report. They will if they if they examine their numbers on average, eighty percent of their giving will come from their top twenty percent of their donors. So, are you going to leave eighty percent of potential funds raised for your organization? off the table because you never took, undertook major gifts? Yeah, that I, and, I, and I was going to ask you about the, the, those sorts of ratios because I've heard them from other people associated with uh, major gifts or who support uh, executive directors and development directors to and, and boards to make the ask. Uh, the, the ratios around um, anywhere from sort of 50 to, as you said, sort of 75, 80% of your individual giving is going to come from these handful of major donors. Yeah, and if you're not at the those ratios yet, it's because you haven't started doing major gifts or you're you're just getting started. It takes time to get to that kind of maturity level, and by no means does that mean neglect your one-to-many strategies because you will not have um, anybody in the pipeline for potential major gift donors if you're not doing those um, you know, first-time gifts, renewal gifts, uh, growth gifts, um, you need to be doing those strategies as well. Uh, but, but the major gift strategy will eventually, when mature, um, be providing just a significant, more sustainable portion of your, of your revenue with very, very fewer donors. And is that, are you thinking, when you say sort of that 80-20, uh, are you, is that 80% of the pot provided by individual donors or 80% of the budget overall? Um, 80% of, well, when I look at revenues, revenues overall, um, but I guess I would have to do a closer examination. Maybe, maybe trends are changing. Um, uh, it, definitely it's true for individuals. Um, I guess some organizations are very, um, uh, strategically poised to do a lot in grants or strategically poised mm-hmm. to to capitalize on government funding. And so I don't think this ratio takes into account um, those types of organizations that are really, you know, maybe already 80% uh, grant funded or, or government funded. Yeah. You mentioned grants and, and it's, a, <laughs> it's an interesting uh, discussion because so many uh, founders and small nonprofits seem to think that grants will take them to the next level a big, a big chunk of, of change. And uh, uh, I think there's a, a bit of debate in the community about the value of grants for particularly smaller organizations. Uh, I mean, on the one hand, the argument is, you know, grants are solid, they're, they, they can be renewed, and you develop this relationship, and, and they are uh, 
uh, easier to get because individual donors don't have to give, but grant makers obviously want to spend the money that they've raised to give, that sort of thing. On, and on the other hand, the those who would argue more for individual gifts, gifts are saying the individual gifts are unrestricted funds. Those are going to be longer-term relationships. They may take a little bit longer to develop, but maybe not. Uh, and uh, the, the, the grants are very restrictive in terms of, of uh, how you can spend them, very demanding in terms of the reports they want. Individual donors don't tend to, to want that sort of feedback. And, and thirdly, grants uh, create a funding cliff because at some point they just stop. Uh, and, and so there's this, there's this sort of tension, I think, for smaller nonprofits who have to decide for the, for the time I have to go and pursue funding, am I better pursuing grants or am I better pursuing these one-to-one relationships? Yeah, I, I hear a lot of organizations asking that question. And I would say I would never advise against any strategy that's keeping your organization uh, functioning that you're doing well in. And so I don't ever say stop doing grants. Uh, my experience in doing grants was that um, I, I fell into a trap of most of the grants that we were um, qualified for and successful for were requiring me to do a brand new program. So they weren't actually helping me support the operation I already had underway. It just meant I was going to have to do a new thing and hire a new person and bring in new resources. Um, So I found that very taxing because it was also pushing me to grow the organization in ways that perhaps were just adjacent to what the board had actually set out in the mission or you know, pushing them to growth areas that we hadn't really discussed in an organized and planned fashion. Um, so that's that's one of the things I found challenging. I should put a caveat on um, uh, what you described in terms of the difference between major gifts and grants and say that um, donors are evolving and becoming a lot more savvy. And so more and more of our major gifts are coming in with some level of restriction, uh, but not to look at it as a negative restriction, more to look at at it as you've done a careful job of understanding exactly what kind of impact they want to have, and you are directing their funds towards that specific project. So an example I sometimes use is if you are running an equine therapy program and you've discovered a donor who has shown significant and growing interest, and you've discovered Uh, through talking about them and their interests and sharing organizational updates over your 18 to 24 months of Mm -hmm. cultivation, you've discovered that um, while you are expanding your programs and adding two new equine therapists so that more children can access your programming, what really lit them up was when you said uh, you need to build a new barn because your animal care was not up to standards. Mm -hmm. And so now, to target the whole ask around the care of the animals and you want to bring them in and you want them to see the animals and where they're living and see the drawings for the new barn because you've discovered that they actually care less about the children getting the equine therapy than they care about the animal care. So designated in some way, restricted in some way. And then on the reporting side, while our donors, individual donors don't require Um, complicated grant reporting structures, which do take an incredible amount of time. Um, We are doing ourselves a great favor 
if we provide them a great impact report. Yeah. Make sure you don't skip the step of made and the impact that it's had on the clients you serve. And that's and that's good practice just to collect those stories and the impact anyway. I mean, that, that should be going on. Uh, but I take your point. You want to make sure that they're not seeing it through social media or some other way that you are actually communicating because you've cultivated this one-to-one relationship. You know that whether they want a monthly phone call or whether they never want to hear from you at all, but typically somewhere in between, you know, where you, yeah. you, you know, you have a quarterly update and you can have that phone chat or, or, or whatever the case may be, but it, because it's an individualized relationship, reporting features in there in, in some way and in some form. Yes, exactly. And I love this story that I heard from someone, which really sets a new standard for all of our stewardship, whether it's one to many or one to one. And it was um, a blood donation uh, organization that um, uh, did a did an amazing new thing. I, I mean, maybe this is common, but it surprised the heck out of me that I got um, a, an email saying, uh, your blood just saved the life of someone at ex-hospital who was in a car accident or something like that. So that kind of wow. um, direct impact. Now that was a blood donation, not a money donation, but you, you want to tell me I didn't run to my next blood donation clinic to, to make sure I could save another life. Because if you are just giving your money or your time or whatever, um, and no one ever gives you that feeling that you've had an actual impact, um, you, you don't have the same connection. So we want to give our donors that kind of experience. We want to say, uh, you know, I work for I work for a university in my day job right now, and um, if I can put that donor together with the scholarship recipient who received their award this year, it's so much more meaningful than even just sending them a thank you letter from the student or a thank you letter from ourselves. Um, if I can then send them a letter five years later and say. I know you have a student recipient this year, but the student you supported five years ago is now a Rhodes Scholar and just change them to have made a difference in the world. Yeah, that's uh, that's huge. And I think that applies, again, across the board to, to, to volunteers who donate their time and to partners who donate their expertise. And as you said, people who donate... Uh, materials and in-kind things often often overlooked in uh, in terms of stewardship and 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 embracing them as part of the team, if you will. Exactly. Um, I would I want to just just press you if I can on this on this one question. If you if you were to to help uh, a, a a new founder starting off uh, decide between effort for uh, writing grants, which is a, perhaps a new skill or a new challenge for them, uh, versus developing some one-to-one relationships and putting the real effort into that. If you had to choose one versus the other, what would you recommend? Well, I'm a major gifts coach, so I'm always going to say major gifts. But when I'm coaching people to, um, to start off with major gifts in a reasonable amount of a portion of their time. So uh, don't say that you're going to dedicate 100% of your time to major gifts. Um, commit to reaching out to 10 people in the next quarter and making that first outreach. And so reaching out and scheduling a meeting with 10 people over a quarter does not take a significant amount of time. Maybe you say, uh, every Wednesday for two hours, I'm going to do something that focuses in on my major gifts. So, so not 
you know, choosing one over the other, but rather making sure you carve out some committed time to do some major gifts work um, in every quarter. Yeah. Okay. I, mean, I, I think that's good advice because what, what I um, often find is that people in their early years, their first, say, even their first five years, as they start, for, they have a, a working board. And then as they grow, they start to uh, bring in some, some, some paid support. And at some point, that board is going to transition to a, a, an oversight board. And there's often these three phases, uh, particularly for those who, who get their friends and family to start on the initial board. And that, that often doesn't, <laughs> doesn't work out too well. So they have to get uh, what we might call real board members who, who, who understand what it means to be on a board and want to commit that time and effort. And then you get your oversight board. So there's sort of three phases. Uh, and as you and I know, uh, in a small nonprofit, board development is, is an ever-present uh, feature. It's, it's constant. It's not a one and done. And so the act of pursuing one-to-one relationships is, is not simply for uh, major gifts of money, but it could also be major gifts of time for, for the, 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 that sort of a, a per, for potential board member. Absolutely. Absolutely. And we do look at that gift of time and wisdom and advice as a, an another indicator of um, uh, alignment, uh, commitment. So if you're looking for those signs um, of, of deepening engagement, you can look to your board as well um, f- for those purposes. Uh, it's not always just looking for, for funds, but yes, their commitment of time is certainly going to be incredibly valuable and something you want to develop one-to-one. Um, I did want to add that a lot of boards have um, just as much and often more fear around what their role will be in fundraising. Um, they didn't approach this from a staff perspective. They're just a volunteer. And so they've got all kinds of uh, potential money issues and certainly issues around past experiences or understandings of fundraising. So it's really important to embed some some early training that demystifies fundraising and removes the fear by giving them, well, I usually take three approaches. The first approach is to work on their mindset. The second uh, stage is to teach them just sort of what a healthy overall fundraising strategy for your organization will look like. And that will help them to approve things when you come forward and make requests. And then third, give them some easy wins so they get some momentum. Never start by saying, uh, you're the board, you need to make these asks and you need to bring in money. That's going to chase them away. You need to say, um, let me start you uh, by supporting our fundraising by, by making some thank you, writing some thank you notes to some of our most important donors or making a few thank you calls or come with me on a stewardship visit. Wow, you want to you delight a new board member about the fun it is to work in fundraising? Um, bring mm-hmm. them with on a, an amazing stewardship visit where you're thanking someone. It's, it's a great way to get them started. Well, that's, I think that goes, uh, that's, that's a really strong point that there are a range of tasks and activities associated with fundraising and board members can contribute in a number of ways. And, and treating every board member as the same is, is a big mistake because they, they, they have different uh, preferences and skills and mindsets around it. And that's why I was referring to the many to one uh, idea where where a board member may be uh, playing the ambassador role or the advocate role and not necessarily the asking role. Exactly. 
So I think I think that's important. Uh, the final area I want to cover before we wind up is this idea of transitioning donors from your one-to-many strategy to your one-to-one strategy. At some point, you will feel that you've exhausted your own network. You've ex- your 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 board has said, "Hey, I've spoken to everyone I know," um, but you will have these one-to-many things that you've done, whether they're events or online uh, programs or peer-to-peer, uh, what, what's the best way to think about how to elevate, if you will, or identify donors in your CRM or somewhere in your list that may be potential folks to reach out to? You use that example about the $200 uh, response to a mail-out. How, how, how should we be thinking about converting those one-to-many donors into one-to-one donors? Yeah, your your database is going to be a gold mine once you start um, sort of having a few years behind you. And so you're looking for patterns of repeated giving, uh, recently increased giving. Um, and those are the individuals you should be pulling out and taking a closer look at them on another list. And then you could do other things um, like compare some of some of those people you've pulled out on a Maybe let's call them a suspect list. Um, I suspect they might have a higher level of interest. I suspect they might have um, uh, a higher level of capacity, but I'm not sure yet. And so you, you might want to do a little bit of research. You know, maybe someone's given uh, $1,000 to your organization three years in a row, um, but you Google their name and find out they gave $250,000 to the hospital. So now you know they have a higher level of capacity, but you need to find out if they have a higher level of interest. So look at your, your database as a gold mine, pulling out uh, repeated giving and increased giving, but also pull out, um, think about age and stage. So uh, people who are in the throes of child raising are often um, maxed out in terms of their uh, uh, ability to give at a major gift level. But people who've sort of reached uh, an age and stage where they're maybe retiring, their kids all have careers of their own, um, are, are often ripe to be thinking about what kind of imp- bigger impact they can make on the world. And, and they're ready for some of those bigger conversations, aspirational philanthropy conversations. So think about age and stage, and then think about um, if you've been around as an organization for a, a longer period of time, anybody who's uh, been giving uh, over 15 years is 80% more likely to be considering you for an estate gift or would be willing to consider you for an estate gift. And I would put um, estate giving or planned giving or whatever you want to call it in the same category of work as the major gifts. That's one-to-one relationship building. So just lump those together. That's just whether the donor wants to give you a, a check today or wants to tell you the check is coming in my estate. Uh, same relationship. Okay. Yeah, that's uh, that's really useful. But there's there's um, there isn't any necessarily uh, a sort of golden indicator in that gold mine <laughs> that says this this person is 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 ideal. You, what you're basically saying is that as a strategy, you have to pull out what you think are some possibilities, look for some patterns, and then do further research. Maybe reach out and 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 have that coffee chat with them. Uh, once we're able to do so, yeah, uh, and and yeah. see what their level of interest might be, or or where they are. 
Yeah, so it, it is more of a formula. If you're a big organization and you've got a lot of data, then you can use the formula. And the people who pop out onto your major gifts list uh, do come through more formulaic uh, data mining. Um, but since we're mostly speaking to smaller uh, organizations, I would say you have to be a little more lenient with your formulas and a little more creative with your data pull. Um, but how I work those donors uh, then, Kev, is um, I would do that data poll at the beginning of the year. And every year I want to know that I have uh, four categories represented in my major gifts plan. I want to know um, a short list of the people who I'm going to discover or qualify means I don't, I only suspect that they might have interest in capacity, but I don't know. So they're on my mm -hmm. list met for the first time. And then I have my short list of people who are going to be cultivated, meaning they're in the middle of that cultivation period, but not quite ready for an ask. And then I have the people I'm, I've been cultivating. They're getting an ask this year. The time is right. And of course that can change, but you're predicting that it's mm -hmm. right for them. And then there's always a list of people who just gave last year. And this is the year to knock stewardship out of the park so that you ensure they're back on that cultivation list uh, next year. So always have four categories in your major guest plan. That's that's great. That's a fantastic way to uh, to wind this up. I want to say thank you, Catherine, uh, for uh, a really, really, really useful uh, discussion around major gifts. Uh, I love this idea of uh, defining them as one-to-one -one relationships, which means basically whatever size nonprofit you are, whatever stage of development you are, there are people you are speaking to one-to-one, -to -one, and those are your, your major gifts, and it's not necessarily always money. Right. Um, but it doesn't happen instantly, like everything else, like all relationships, you've got to invest some time for them to mature, but it's a key component of your financial stability and sustainability. Absolutely. And so if people want to learn more about sort of how to cultivate those donors or um, what kinds of questions to ask in those meetings or how to even get those meetings, they can certainly reach out to me, Kev. That's really uh, the type of coaching that I do because I really want to see more people embracing and not being afraid of getting started with major gifts. And, and how should people find you then online? So my initials are CY and then the word philanthropy.com. And I have a couple of workshops that I offer for free. One is um, getting started with major, with major gifts. So that would just be uh, cyphilanthropy.com slash major hyphen gifts. And the other one is uh, cyphilanthropy.com slash uh, the ask. It's about making the ask. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, that, that's, uh, that's, those are wonderful resources. Great, and I was uh, really enjoying this conversation. Uh, so glad I was able to talk about my passion for major gifts. Oh, and thank you for dropping all those, uh, those wonderful points. Um, and, uh, and thank you, and hopefully you come on uh, again in future. Great, thanks so much, Kev. Best of luck to you to all your listeners. Okay, thank you so much. This has been episode 28 of the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. We've been speaking to Catherine Yule, who you can find online at cyphilanthropy.com. Is that correct? Not .org, right. right? .com. That's right. Okay. Thank you so much. All right. We'll see you next time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Nonprofit Problem Solver podcast. My guest today was Catherine Yule, whose website is cyphilanthropy.com. This podcast has been expertly produced by Glenn Munoz at PodPro Audio. Find him at podproaudio.com. 
You can join future conversations live by visiting nonprofitproblemsolver.com. Connect with Kev on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. For more information, visit kevkayat.com. Because good causes deserve better results.